The Brief is supported by Bloomberg Connects, the free arts and culture app. House builders throw support behind Labour as Conservatives bow to nimbyism. Fresh plans submitted for London Tower set to be joint tallest in Europe. Channel 4 to sell iconic Richard Rogers-designed HQ amid job cuts. And the Clifftop project dubbed Grand Design's saddest ever home goes back on the market. My name is Saiba Chudder. I'm an architect and partner at Cullinan Studio, and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's big stories in architecture, planning and housing news. Welcome to The Brief from Open City. My guest this week is Pooja Agarwal. Pooja is an architect and chief executive of public practice and a trustee of Open City. Welcome to the show, Pooja. Thanks to the Open City team for having me. A staggering 70% of house builders are backing the Labour Party to win the next general election, according to a Knight Frank survey covered by the Financial Times this week. The Conservative government's apparent willingness to bow to nimbyism, combined with the revolving door of housing ministers, of which there have been 15 since David Cameron took power in 2010, have reportedly left the industry feeling alienated. The polling, which looked at 50 house building companies together responsible for building 70,000 homes a year, found an overwhelming majority favoured the Labour Party in the upcoming UK elections expected later this year. Charlie Hart, head of development land at Knight Frank, said, quote, There is clearly mounting frustration amongst house builders and growing demand for practical solutions. Industry execs slammed the government for scrapping plans to ease planning restrictions and watering down policies, which they say will ultimately lead to fewer homes being built. Last year, there was a net increase of 234,400 new homes in England, a figure which falls woefully short of the government's own 300,000 per year target. Experts are predicting the number to fall even further this year. Meanwhile, the Standard reported that in the capital, more than 6,000 ghost houses are left half-built as a result of last year's sudden downturn in the property market. In the midst of the acute housing shortage facing Londoners at the end of 2023, construction on 61 major housing sites with at least 20 homes at each have been halted indefinitely with the gates padlocked. This comes as 4,370 UK construction firms have gone bust over the past 12 months the highest number of bankruptcies in the industry for three years due to rocketing costs for materials and labour. According to the auditing firm Mazars, this is a 76% increase in bankruptcies since 2020 to 2021 financial year. So Pooja, who are house builders? What role do they play in our economy and housing market? And why is it so newsworthy to see them throwing their backing behind a future Labour government in such, a, in such high numbers? Well, house builders, I guess it says it in the name. They're organisations or companies that build housing. And in the UK, development and housing has always been quite a key part of economic activity and growth. So as you've stated, governments have for quite a long time actually repeatedly been targeting building 300,000 homes a year. But we are actually nowhere near that. In fact, according to the Home Builders Federation, also known as the HBF, planning permissions granted for new homes in England have actually fallen to a record low and predicts housing supply will drop to under 200,000 homes in this coming year. So in December, Michael Gove, the Secretary of State, actually announced a whole new plethora of planning reforms and updates to the National Planning Policy Framework, also known as the NPPF. Interestingly, I thought, because I was there 
all these announcements took place at the ROBA. So it was almost a sort of commitment to design and beauty, something we're not particularly talking about today, but it, was, it still felt quite symbolic that all these planning announcements were made at the ROBA. Anyway, one of the announcements that was made was it was confirmed that local housing targets were now officially advisory and there were sort of changing expectations around five-year housing supply plans. I'm not a planning lawyer and I can refer you to other places to hear much more detail about this. But this actually takes a huge amount of pressure, I suppose, that local authorities have had to supply housing. And there continues to be a focus on density and urban density with an uplift of sort of 35% more housing in these urban areas. Also, the NPPF has new wordings around the green belt, which, to be honest, I think doesn't split as easy as the left or the right, but it's being argued on all sides of politics. But in effect, there's no requirement to review green belt boundaries. So this basically is controversial because Gove is being accused by the sector of bowing down to the needs of NIMBY backbenchers, which tend to be focused outside urban areas. So interestingly, in this context, Labour is positioning itself as the party to solve the housing crisis and be pro-development, continuing with that same target, interestingly, of 1.5 million homes in five years. And looking at what can be seen as quite controversial policies, including strategic green belt release, something that Sadiq actually stayed quite far away from. So in this context, I think it's really interesting to see house builders backing a future Labour government in such numbers. Yeah, there's obviously so much. It's quite a complicated web fair of different kind of factors. I mean, house builders are often being accused as being at least partially responsible for lots of housing crisis issues, you know, such as driving up of land prices, slow delivery of new homes, and things like low numbers of affordable and socially rented units. Um, So, I mean, you you kind of touched on this a little bit, the kinds of policies that house builders might favour. And, you know, what what does that say about Labour's policy position? Could you kind of elaborate a little bit of that? Because we're seeing important industry figures, you know, in the form of house builders putting their weight behind on opposition party. So, I mean, is there anything you could elaborate on that? Interesting, last week, the Architecture Foundation held an event talking about housing manifesto. And actually at that event, one of the things I said was not really helpful was just to keep constantly blaming every single part of the the group of people that sort of develop and live in housing. So to move beyond just blaming developers, blaming the community, blaming planners and blaming architects. I think there's a danger in doing that. There are actually measures in the Leveling Up and Regeneration Act, which is in the process at the moment on land banking, actually giving power to local authorities to decline applications if applicants haven't begun other sites or they're seen to be developing sites really slowly. So it's almost sort of going against this idea of land banking. But to be honest, at this point in time, I think what we really need is stability and security. As mentioned earlier, we have actually seen 24 housing ministers in 24 years. And so this actually predates this current political party. In the last year, I've met two or three. I'm actually meeting one later this afternoon. And basically, the sort of constant churn is not really helping with economic certainty or knowing what is happening around, say, the NPPF and the approach to targets, which if that was given, that would give certainty to developers and they would know what they could actually deliver and what the expectations are. 
So at a local level, local authorities are actually holding their local plans. They've put on hold like Mole Valley. And despite there being sort of transitional provisions as we move between these different policies, it is actually having a huge impact on housing delivery and managing the kind of vision for what housing should be. Almost 90% of local authorities surveyed through the RTPI are actually struggling with the backlog of cases. And by 2025, we probably see almost 75% of local authorities having out-of-date plans for housing delivery. So interestingly, I think Labour sort of positioning themselves where housing is seen as a tool for economic growth. Perhaps this is why it's being welcomed by the house building sector. People in the Labour Party would argue whether whether that is the right position for housing to be an economic driver rather than, say, a tool for welfare. But that is a different conversation. Yeah, I mean, that's that's an amazing answer. There's so much kind of richness in, in you know, all of that background. Um, on the other hand, the Evening Standard is reporting a downturn in housing that's leaving these kind of ghost homes uh, across the capital, you know, in thousands of numbers. So, you know, what are the impacts of this downturn in house building likely to have on our economy and, and our housing market? You know, will the things like these ghost homes keep happening? Are there going to be ramifications for years to come? What What are your thoughts on that? We are continuing to see the huge impact of the lack of housing in this country, whether it's homelessness to soaring rents, uh, the huge impact on social housing. Local authorities are spending five times more on housing benefits than actually building more homes. So it's all of this kind of short term solutions. But Actually, if we look beyond the economics of this, having ghost towns and half-built developments have a huge impact on how neighbourhoods feel, how people use the streets around it, how safe they feel, the kind of wider placemaking impact. And I think that is something that I'm actually particularly worried about from the story. Yeah, and that's the kind of tangible thing that a lot of our listeners probably feel when they're walking around certain parts of London. So when it comes down to a lot of the policy stuff you can't relate to, but that is something really concrete that you can feel. Revised plans have been submitted for what could be the joint tallest building in Western Europe in the City of London. It was reported in Construction News this week. Back in 2019, the City of London Corporation approved plans for a 289-metre, 73-storey cuboid tower at one undershaft near the Gherkin and the Cheese Grater. The approved tower was set to feature an external cross-bracing structure with 90,000 square metres of office space. However, Eric Parry Architects and Development Manager Stanhope have now submitted revised plans for a 74-storey tower featuring an 11-storey podium topped by three-stepped glazed boxes and outdoor amenity spaces. These new designs boost the amount of available office space to 160,000 square metres and offers a further 20,000 square metres of other space, including public realm. This latest proposal is one storey or five metres taller than the original plans, making it the same height as its would-be neighbour, the Shard, currently the tallest building in the UK. Meanwhile, The Guardian reported that Transport for London is set to trial off-peak tube and rail fares on Fridays in a bid to encourage people back into the city as working from home remains hugely popular. According to figures from the London Mayor's office, weekend rider numbers have bounced back to pre-pandemic levels. However, fewer people are utilising midweek services. The number of rail and tube passengers is reportedly 85% of previous levels, but Fridays are especially unpopular with ridership at just 73%. Sadiq Khan said the cheaper fare aimed at encouraging people back into the city would, quote, 
potentially support economic growth by filling restaurants, bars and venues in the capital. It is also hoped that this initiative will help TfL's own finances, which were severely impacted by successive lockdowns, leading to a standoff with MPs over a series of post-COVID bailouts. So Pooja, Eric Parry Architects Revised Designs contain 70,000 square metres more office space than the original pre-pandemic designs, which is part of a wider trend in new office developments across the capital. There's a reported new start volume of 5.1 million square feet across 43 schemes last year. I mean, why are we seeing such an intense office building push in a post-pandemic world where you know, a lot of people are working from home and that's their preference? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting one. I think the way the sector understands demand is around rental values. And from my understanding, there's been a continued demand of commercial use in space and the rental value in London has continued post-pandemic. From my understanding, this demand continues to be around the city and what is seen as high quality locations. And it's almost accentuating this idea that the city is the city. So people want to be there. We're seeing more commercial spaces being more flexible in its uses and its leases, which removes that kind of longer term risk for big floor space commitments. And we're also seeing a sort of shift perhaps post-Brexit, on the types of businesses that the city is serving. So more and more tech companies actually occupying the city. So I think even though more people are working from home, there does seem to be a demand for this high-end office space. And what I would really be interested to know if we're seeing a reduction of this commercial space in other parts of London, but an increased demand just in the city of London. Yeah, that's a great point. And I guess that also ties a little bit into some of that placemaking that we kind of brought in earlier talking about housing, because as these central spaces might have more offices, then there's more need for the public realm to kind of support that with people kind of being in London. Um, you know, you're, you're head of public practice, an organisation which works directly with local government, a lot of respect to placemaking. With your experience, you know, what sort of shifts have you noticed in our urban environment, you know, as a result of this working from home phenomenon? I suppose it's been over a decade where local authorities have been thinking much more about their neighbourhoods and their town centres in particular, and what the role of the town centre or the high street is beyond it being a space for economic activity, whether that's sort of commercial space or whether that is retail. And seeing that these spaces potentially as more opportunities for social cohesion for communities rather than being those economic drivers. So I think from my conversations with local authorities, which obviously I have all the time, the town centre and the high street continues to be a key focus for investment. And I suppose lots of the levelling up funding was towards enhancing these spaces, developing these spaces and making sure that the public realm can hold this different type of activity, but also make people use use their local high streets more given that they're working from home more. So I think the town centre and high streets should continue to be a really key focus for local authorities. Yeah, that's a great point that, you know, working from home brings this other kind of buzz in all these kind of suburban areas. So in that vein, and I guess on the other hand of that, like where do skyscrapers, uh, you know, such as the one that Eric Parry have designed fit into our future cities? Are they a really intrinsic part of building high density or are they actually quite ineffective with dealing with some of these shifting needs of the city that we're talking about? Cities in my mind go through decades worth of waves of 
growth of depopulation, adaptation and re-emergence. And I always think those cities that can adapt are actually those ones that continue to be thriving and vibrant. I think skyscrapers are part of a nostalgic idea of what the office is and office space in the city. And also, I suppose, you know, when I was studying at university, it was all about that kind of the icon of capitalism in a way, you know, as a star architect. And we, I do think we've moved beyond that. But it is interesting that there does continue to be this demand. And perhaps as we've moved into a much more globalised world where London is a global city, it, it continues to have this demand and need. Are they ineffective? I don't know. The data doesn't tell us that. So perhaps what we as architects need to think about is, you know, how do we design these buildings to be adaptive and have that quality of flexibility of spaces to think about how these buildings might be used differently in the future? Yeah, and I guess it's also hard to imagine cities of the future without the kind of one-upmanship of this skyscraper is one story taller than the next one or the previous one. Okay, we'll move on to our next story. Channel 4 has announced plans to sell its iconic Richard Rogers-designed London headquarters amid cuts to a fifth of its workforce. It was reported in The Guardian and The Times. The broadcaster, which has been in dire financial straits following the worst downturn in TV advertising since 2008, has confirmed plans to lay off 18% of its workforce and intends to relocate to a smaller location in central London as it moves to employ most of its staff outside London. The Richard Rogers Building, which was completed in 1994, was awarded Grade 2 listing by Historic England last year as a, quote, elegant example of high-tech architecture. This latest round of cuts forms part of the five-year fast-forward strategy, which aims to accelerate Channel 4's ambition to become a digital-first broadcaster. Meanwhile, on a similar theme, Edwin Heathcote, a previous guest on this show, penned an opinion piece in the Financial Times arguing that the UK is dismantling its legacy of municipal splendour. Just a couple of weeks ago, we discussed with Des Fitzgerald how government grant funding for councils fell by 40% in real terms between 2009-10 and 2019-20, leaving councils with no other choice but to cut back on key services. The UK government is now considering relaxing the rules allowing councils to sell off key assets. Since 2010, more than 800 public libraries, 1,000 sewing pools, over 200 playing fields, half of all magistrate courts and 1,000 public toilets have been closed in an attempt to plug the £15 billion hole in central government funding. Heathcote writes how so many grand symbols of civic identity in the capital have already been sold into private ownership. The old war office in Whitehall has just opened as a hotel and Admiralty Arch will soon follow. On the south side of the river, County Hall has been turned to Shrek's Adventure and Foster City Hall has been vacated for redevelopment after the Greater London Authority moved to the Docklands. So Pooja, what do you make of the iconic Channel 4 building? Do you like it? Um, would it be a shame if it was converted into another block of luxury apartments? I mean, wouldn't it be great if we had more imagination than converting the Channel 4 building into luxury apartments? I think for me, that's what it comes down to. In some ways, I actually feel less worried about the Channel 4 building being converted into whatever it does get converted into because the public never really had that access into it. And even though it might be a symbol of like broader public institution, people weren't really able to go in. So where my fundamental worry lies is actually pointing to 
Heathcote's examples of civic buildings being converted into luxury apartments or hotel. And this very much is my experience of understanding where local authorities are in terms of their finances, the huge deficit they are in. And this is quite a short-term response to what needs to be a much longer-term response to the financial crisis. From working with public practice, you have an inside kind of ear into what's going on with local authorities. What what are the kinds of conversations you're hearing, you know, in the face of all these massive cuts to government funding and, you know, especially with regard to the built environment? Things are really tough out there and we definitely don't rose tint that when we are attracting and encouraging people to join the public sector If we look specifically at planning teams, we've seen funding being cut by 43% since 2020 and actually being cut way more, over 60% in the Northeast, for example. And this has a huge impact on what planning teams or placemaking teams are really able to do. And we talked about the huge amount of backlog they have in terms of responding to cases. Whereas the central, I suppose, the reason lots of planners become planners is because of the plan making part of the process of being able to have that vision and thinking about what the future of places are. We run a recruitment and skills survey every year. And last year, we know that about a third of the officers are planning to leave the public sector over the next two years. And there's going to be some sort of change to the working arrangements. And the key themes that come from this is funding, but it is beyond funding. It's about the lack of skills in the market, the use of agency staff, and also what the RTPI has been addressing is the huge negative targeting of officers on social media. And all of this is linked. This has a huge contribution to really low morale in the sector. So as I said earlier, when planning and placemaking teams and local authorities are constantly in this firefighting mode, there is no opportunity to take that longer term vision and go back to your first question around housing and thinking about where are these houses built and for whom. So Edwin Heathcote wrote in his article, quote, we have learned nothing from the disastrous disposal of council housing from 1980 onwards of council homes sold off under right to buy 40% have been rented out by private landlords, many to social tenants, with landlords' profits subsidised by the state. It has been a huge transfer of wealth from public to private, a levelling down. So, I mean, right to buy is often credited with significantly contributing to that housing crisis. Um, Today, you know, with this in mind, what would be the impact of losing more publicly owned assets, you know, such as libraries, sports centres and public toilets? Um, what's the impact of losing those on local communities? Could it could this be a similar scale of impact as Right to Buy had on housing? I mean, honestly, this is where I feel like my heart breaks. I think there's such a huge risk of losing civic assets, and we've already lost a number of these assets. These places really hold communities together. Fundamentally, this is actually to do with revenue funding. That is what local authorities need to support these facilities yet they're selling what is seen as a capital asset, like a physical asset due to this lack of revenue funding. So if you take libraries, for example, before you even start to talk about the building, we need to be able to service them. And since 2010, we've seen UK library numbers fall by more than 17%. And there's 50 fewer libraries in the UK right now than they were before the COVID pandemic. So there's a 
basic lack of funding to actually keep these assets alive, to have people to service them. And then there's a sort of bigger choice of whether a local authority should sell a library building rather than have an empty library building. So before we're even talking about selling of these assets, is thinking about how do we actually serve and keep these assets alive. And I think we're starting to see different forms of civic action and co-ownership and community groups taking over these these assets. But I do think that we can't just devolve what the power and responsibility for the state is in these spaces to make sure these assets continue and thrive and are seen as really important places that communities come together. Absolutely. I think with the building type of a library that you've picked up on, that seems to be one that's close to everyone's hearts. You know, aside from having books, they offer so many other things, you know, community events and things for children and you know, my local library was listed as a warm space for people who are, you know, dealing with kind of cost of living crisis. So they're one example where I think people will be watching that quite carefully over the next few years. Um, so on to our, our final story of today's episode, um, a clifftop mansion in North Devon, dubbed the saddest house on Grand Designs, was listed for sale this week through debt collectors. This story was picked up by The Mirror. Chesil Cliff House, designed to resemble a lighthouse, was one of the show's most ambitious projects and gained notoriety when it cost owner Edward Short his marriage and left him £7 million of debt. The project, originally set to be completed in 18 months and budgeted at £1.8 million, took a staggering 12 years to build and cost in the region of £10 million. The still unfinished property was listed for sale at the beginning of last year and was removed from the estate agent's website amid serious talks with a potential buyer. However, it was reported that the sale fell through at the last minute. The five-bedroom home has now been put back on the market at £5.25 million, according to Rightmove, which lists it as, quote, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to take on and finish one of the UK's most spectacularly situated coastal homes. So, Pooja, what do you make of this uh, Grand Design story? Do, do you watch Grand Designs? Did you see this episode when it came out in 2019? I didn't. I've never really watched Grand Designs. I always find it quite interesting, though, how all my non-architect friends are completely addicted to it. And they, they just love to see the kind of stress that people are getting going through. For me, the, the saddest house symbolises the sad state we are in terms of a housing market where... This house, which has five bedrooms, is £5.25 million, where each bedroom is a million pounds. So I think this basically points to so many of the issues we have already discussed today about the rising inequality around housing. Yeah, and I mean, I don't watch it anymore. I think I used to watch it before I became an architect. But yeah, it's been running for 20 years and it has, I think, 159 episodes over 21 series. So it's actually got a huge impact on people's perception and engagement with architecture you know, whether people like the show or not, you know, people in the industry like the show or not. So do you think it's a good thing to raise the profile of architecture, you know, with a wider audience? Or do you think that this particular, uh, you know, brand of architecture show is a challenging touchstone for the industry to have to kind of bear? I actually had the privilege of sharing a stage with David Olusoga last year, and we both were discussing housing. And actually, David highlighted the issue with with media and how media represents architecture to the public as it always, always is really narrow in terms of its communication to what architecture is 
is these fancy homes without there being much interest from the media around tackling wider ideas and themes around social housing. It's quite limited. So I think it's important and would be great if we could widen this narrative of architecture to be beyond fancy housing, to be about cities, towns and neighbourhoods. And perhaps then there would be more of an outcry for the selling off of, say, this Channel 4 building. But maybe that's up to us architects as well to to make ourselves more poppy and more interesting to the wider public. Yeah, and I mean, there have been other shows that have kind of had primetime billing. There was the the house that 100K built, which was Kieran Long and, and Piers Taylor um, put together that show. And I think that was quite a good one because it actually looked at completely scale that was different scale that was more tangible for people whereas grand designs you know featuring five million pound um you know houses is just not really in people's budgets and probably people sort of slightly hate watching it to see how how badly it goes it goes wrong um so now onto the culture section open city are hosting a debate to tackle low pay and undercutting in the architecture sector they're asking the question why do architects so often accept low fees high workloads and poxy salaries when competing for jobs. The debate, which is one of a series created as part of Open City's Accelerate program, will explore whether practices routinely taking work in kind rather than hard cash and low-balling fees have been baked into the profession, driving down conditions and fueling a culture of undercutting. This will be at Shoreditch Arts Centre Rich Mix on Wednesday, uh, the 28th of February. And you can find out more information about this event on the Open City website. Also on the schedule this Saturday, the 3rd of February, we have a running of the Thames Boat Tour East. And if you are looking to experience some amazing housing, including Cedar Chase and Turn End, please sign up for our next Baylight Fellowship Day on Friday, the 1st of March. All the details will be on the Open City website. Thanks very much for joining us. I loved it. Thanks so much. So Pooja, where can listeners go to follow what you're up to and keep up to date with everything that public practice are doing great you can sign up to our newsletter if you just go onto our website you can follow us on linkedin and i'm also these days probably most vocal on linkedin one of the days of twitter sadly you've been listening to the brief from open city made in association with the london society and the 20th century society This show is made possible in part thanks to Bloomberg Connects, a free digital guide to art and cultural organisations around the world. A link to download Bloomberg Connects is in the show notes. If you've enjoyed The Brief and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which covers all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to The Brief and support Open City's wider work empowering young people from underrepresented communities, please become an Open City friend today. The link is in the show notes. The Brief is produced by Poppy Waring and hosted by Phineas Harper, Merlin Fulcher, Cyber Chadder and Fran Williams. The series editor is Merlin Fulcher. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible and equitable. Mm-hmm.